Well, hello everybody, uh, it's good to be back with you, um, we're continuing our series on the Psalms, so last week we, uh, we had a look at Psalm 1 and today, keep your Bible open, we're going to be paying close attention to Psalm 2. Uh, I've got Nathan to read, thanks for your prayer too Nathan, oh, we're going to pray now too, because you can't come to God's word without asking that he'll help you, right, I don't think you, so let, let's pray. Uh, Master, speak, your servants are listening. So please speak to us by your Holy Spirit for our building up in the faith, for our perseverance, and so that we might live lives that bring glory to your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For a while at Warrigal Presbyterian, Ray had a theme going in our bulletin. He asked every week, why do people hate Jesus? Have you ever noticed that they do? It's true, and Jesus said to expect it. And so the, the reading that we just had from John 15, Jesus says, uh, they've hated me, and they'll hate you too. Now, we spoke a bit about this last week, and I know that there's people here who have, who have been on the wrong end of hatred from work colleagues or family uh, or other people just for the sake of loving the Lord Jesus. It can get you into trouble. You, if, you, if you keep your wits about you and your eyes open and read the news just a little bit, you'll discover that right around the world, people are suffering for loving Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, don't be surprised about this. Um, so the world hates me, says Jesus, and it'll hate you too. The world persecuted me, and it'll persecute you. Uh, John 15, verse 23, Jesus says, whoever hates me hates my father. So it's a serious business to hate Jesus, because it means you've made an enemy of God. And that's not a good thing. Jesus says they hated me without cause. Now that's a quote from the Psalms and what it means is the hatred for Jesus is actually irrational. It doesn't make sense. There's a lot in life that doesn't make sense, would you agree? There's a lot of things that can't properly be explained. When you've come to know Jesus, when you've seen all that he's done, when you've thought about all that he's taught, when you realise that he laid down his life so that my life could be spared and saved so I could spend eternity with God you think well how could how could anybody hate a man like that and yet they do well there's an answer and it's in John 3 there's lots of answers I suppose but but um, John's already told us in John chapter 3 that when Jesus came he comes as the light of the world and in John 3 verse 19 it says light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil you see the thing is light will always react against darkness and vice versa. The darkness hates the light. And so that's the kind of world we live in. And Psalm 2 throws a very sharp focus on the true nature of the world that we're living in. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this book, Miracle on the River Choir. My dad had it and I pinched it from him years ago and forgot to return it and I still have it. I've found copies since then in op shops and if ever I come across a copy of this, I always get it. Um, and, and try to find someone to give it to. So Miracle on the River Choir is an extraordinary book and it tells the story of a man called Ernest Gordon who was a, uh, an officer in the British military during the Second World War. He was Scottish but he was uh, taken prisoner when the Japanese succeeded in invading Singapore and uh, he was taken in, uh, to a number of prison camps and eventually he was taken to the River Kwai uh, where the Japanese were building a bridge across the River Kwai so that they could... Uh, have an unbroken line from Burma into Thailand and it was a murderous place to be because uh, it was hot, it was uh, humid 
Uh, they were fed poorly. They were looked after atrociously. The Japanese guards were cruel. And so many, many, many people died. Uh, it's a terrible blight in human history. Well, Ernest Gordon became very ill. And once a person became too ill to work, the Japanese simply left them to die. They put them in what was called the death house. So there's Ernest Gordon, uh, university educated Ernest Gordon, an officer of the British military, lying, waiting to die. And a young English soldier came in and asked, could he help? And Ernest Gordon said, well, what can you do for me? And he said, well, I'm going to try to, I'm going to look after you. Now, Ernest Gordon was expecting to die. This young man introduced himself as Dusty Miller. And so Dusty Miller said, well, I work night shift, which means I'm pretty much free during the day. He says, I'm going to bring you food because I work in the kitchen and I'll look after your wounds. So everybody there had tropical ulcers. And sometimes they were infected, badly infected, and sometimes they were crawling with all sorts of unmentionable creatures. And so every day, once he'd finished work in the kitchen overnight, Dusty Miller would come in and massage Ernest Gordon's legs, would attend to his wounds, would get rid of the pus, would get rid of the maggots, and he would share the food that he would have eaten himself with him. And eventually, they started to, to talk. Dusty Miller was a Christian. Ernest Gordon was an atheist. And he said, do you really believe that? And he said, yes, I do. And so they kept on going, they kept on talking, and eventually... An extraordinary thing happened in that that, mill at that, that prison camp. There was a, a, a Christian revival and Ernest Gordon was at the very centre of it and that's very much the story of the book and it's a wonderful book to read about the, the, the miracle of Christian conversion even in the darkness of a Japanese prisoner of war camp. But when the war came to an end, Ernest Gordon had survived and one of the things that happened was the survivors always wanted to know what had happened to their friends. Now, Dusty Miller, this man who had kept Ernest Gordon alive, had been taken away from that camp and gone to another camp. And when the war ended, Ernest Gordon started asking around, what happened to Dusty, what happened to Dusty? And eventually, he met a man who knew, but he couldn't bring himself in the first instance to even tell him what had happened. And so Gordon pressed on. He says, where is he now? The man was reluctant to speak. He stammered for a minute or two, and then he said he had a pretty bad time of it. And so Gordon says, well, but what happened? The man looked away. The last news I heard of him wasn't good. Well, what was it then? According to what I heard, he was in trouble. Dusty, says Gordon. The man replied, he got the Japanese officer in charge pretty much down on him. What had he done wrong? That was it. He hadn't done anything wrong. The Japanese soldier hated him because he couldn't break him. You know how he was. He was a good man if ever there was one. That's why he hated him. What did they do to him? They strung him up to a tree. And so the story goes that Dusty Miller was a man who would not renounce his faith and that was what the the Japanese officer wanted him to do. He was trying to humiliate him and trying to break him and when he couldn't, he crucified him. The light will always react against the darkness and the darkness hates the light. And that, friends, is our world. The world is not a level playing field and if you think it is, you need to read Psalm 2, which we're going to do. Now last week we looked at Psalm 1 and Psalm 1 starts, blessed is the person, blessed is the man who, three things that he doesn't do, some things that he does do. But effectively it boils down to this, The man God blesses, the person God blesses is a person who lives by his word.
But Psalm 2 ends with a blessing. And so we can say that these two Psalms are to be seen together and they form a perfect introduction to the book of Psalms which tell us that we can expect over the rest of the 148 Psalms to find a fair bit about the kind of life that God will bless. So I started last week asking, do you want to be blessed by God? Faint murmur out there, do you want to be blessed by God? Of course you do. You'd be a fool not to be. Well, stay tuned. You need to pay attention to the Psalms because it tells the kind of life that God will bless. And what does it mean? It means you live a life that you can be congratulated for. You live a life that others should look at and say, wow, that's a good life. A a, a blessed life is a life that fulfills God's purposes. It holds together. It works when everything else is breaking up. Uh, a, A blessed life is a byproduct of living by God's word, doing what's right. It means living under the authority of God's word. So blessed is the one, Psalm 1 starts out, blessed is the man, it's a a psalm for individuals, Psalm 2 is a psalm for people, blessed are all. So the first psalm is an individual psalm, the second one is a collective psalm. So you need to be thinking about the things that God will do to bless a person on their own, but then the things that come to to, to the congregation of the righteous. So uh, Psalm 1 is two ways to live for for individuals, Psalm 2 is two ways to live for the world. Now Psalm 1 talks about the way that God will bless and the way that will lead to to God's eternal punishment, the way of death. You could look at Psalm 1 and wonder, is life a journey? That's a popular way of looking at life. Uh, It's not always an adequate way of looking at life. It's, It's okay to a point, but whenever I go on a journey, it seems to be to go somewhere nice like Mafra. Um, So it makes life sound like a holiday, and life is not always a holiday, is it? Right? Uh, But if we think that life's a journey, we need to get our perspective strengthened by realising that Psalm 2 says that life is a battle. I remember one of my very earliest conversations with Ray Patchett. Uh, You all know Ray, don't you? The the previous pastor of this church, you know Ray. I said to him, what do you think when people say life's a journey, Ray? He says, no, mate, it's a battle. And I thought, I'm going to like this guy. (laughs) Because he tells it like it is. Uh, there's an ancient saying, you've got to know your enemy. If you want to win a battle, you've got to know who you're fighting. You've got to know what you're up against, which means for us, we need to understand our world. Psalm 1 is the, the godly life, and we've seen there that living a godly life, the world will try to seduce you. It will try to trick you into thinking, no, it's not that bad. You don't need to take God's word that seriously. Uh, Psalm 2 tells us that the blessed life is going to be lived in the context of opposition. If you don't like the sound of that, then you haven't yet understood what it really means to follow Jesus. But Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So friends, I want to tell you today, we need to get real about the gospel, about the kingdom of Jesus, but about the world that we're living in, that we're seeking to win for Jesus. Psalm 2 assures us that life is a battle and that the faithful uh, servant of the Lord Jesus will find opposition. So I've summed up the whole psalm in two little sentences which form the basis of the outline which I've had printed in the bulletin. Psalm 2 I think can be summed up this way. The world picks a fight that can't win. The king warns all he rules to find refuge in him. So we're going to be working our way through these four clauses, two sentences. The world picks a fight it can't hope to win. The king warns all he rules to find refuge in him. 
Another way of thinking of Psalm 2 is to say that blessed are all who take refuge in God's Son, because that's where the psalm ends up. So the first three verses, Psalm 2 breaks itself up into four very neat little units, each of three verses. The first three verses, please have a look at it there. The situation that the psalmist addresses is one of conspiracy. The nations are muttering. Uh, It's a coup d'etat. It's a rebel uprising. We've seen a bit of that on our TVs this past week, haven't we? People taking the law into their own hands. Well, the word for plot there is, um, it means to murmur, to mumble, to mutter. And it means to do it in secret, turning your back away from the leader and actually plotting that leader's demise. You are wanting to work together with all the other mutterers to make sure that the leader is brought down. Now that word plot that we find in Psalm 2 verse 1 is exactly the same Hebrew word as the word that's translated meditate in Psalm 1 verse 2. Now that's an interesting play on words and it's another sign that Psalm 1 and 2 are meant to be read together. Right. So the godly person meditates on God's word but the ungodly plot against God. And when it says that they're plotting, they're muttering, they're mumbling, their opposition to God is vain, what that means is it's empty, it's futile, it's bound to fail. So have a look at Psalm 2 at the very beginning. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? They're angry and yet their anger is going to wind up pointless. Well, the nations rage and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Set set themselves is a military term. It means they've adopted a fighting stance. So they're not just going to talk about opposing God. They're actually going to do something about it. Now, we've already seen that the psalmist has said their opposition to God is pointless. It's vain. It's futile. We read just a little while later on that God laughs. Because God knows this is an unequal contest. But they're setting themselves, they're adopting a fighting stance. Some years ago my son Tom and I were driving in Melbourne. I needed to take him back to my brother's place because Tom's car was there. So it was about 10 o'clock, we were driving through Blackburn, up Main Street, Blackburn. And about 100 metres in the distance, we'd just come round a corner and we saw a man who looked like he was doing something a bit untoward with cars parked on the road. Well anyway, we kept driving... And as we got closer, this man walked to the middle of Main Street, Blackburn, and adopted a boxing pose. He put his dukes up. We're driving a car at 60 kilometres an hour. And he comes out to the middle of the road and puts his dukes up. And so I said to Tom, I think you better slow down. And so he slowed down and tried to go around him. So the man went across, right between the headlights. And so we pulled up a few metres in front of him. And then he started to advance on us. Now, if we'd maintained our 60 kilometres, what hope did he have? And yet there he was wanting to fight us. That's what happens when people take on God. It's a fight they're never going to win. That's why this is vain, it's futile, it's doomed to fail. When people take on God, they don't know who they've picked a fight with. But the leaders of the world have set themselves against God. The kings and the rulers, they've made enemies of Yahweh, the Lord and his anointed. Now the anointed is a code word. Now there's three words that all mean king in this passage and here's the first of them, right? Now if you've read the Old Testament, if you know the Old Testament stories, you'll realise 
that when God chose a king or when God set apart a priest for his work, that person was publicly anointed for their role by having symbolic oil tipped on their head. So the very famous story of the prophet Samuel going to the house of Jesse to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king over Israel and the the son that God picked out was the youngest, David. And so Samuel had taken a, a horn with oil in it and he tipped it over David's head to say this is the one that God's chosen. And so God's choice was represented by this act of anointing. So to talk about the anointed in Psalm 2 means the king. So when you see it there, that means the king. We're talking about the king of God's choosing. But the the literal Hebrew word is where we get the word Messiah from. So the, the, the anointed is God's Messiah, which is another way of saying the king. So what does Messiah mean? It means the anointed one who is the king. We need to bear that in mind. Now, here's a question. Why should the nation submit to Israel's king? Israel was a tiny little country, very small in land, but also small in population. Why should all these powerful nations around about submit to Israel's king? Why should we submit to Israel's king? Well, it's because there's only one God in the whole world, and that one God, for purposes that he explains in Exodus 19 and in Deuteronomy 7 and other places, that one God chose Israel. So God chose Israel to reveal himself to the world and to show what his salvation, his saving message for the world was. God chose Israel to be the human means by which he was going to restore blessing to a world which is under his curse. Now God didn't choose the Roman people. He didn't choose the Babylonian people. He didn't choose the Egyptians. He chose Israel. If you don't like that, then you need to have it out with God. But when you decide you don't like what God does, you've said, I'm going to be your enemy. It's better, as we'll see in this psalm, just to give in and say, God, you know what you're doing. So God chose Israel, and so Israel's king was the world's true king. But what do the nations say? Well, in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're rebels quietly plotting to go against God, the law that God gave in Psalm 1 is a good law. And yet these rebels are saying it's like wearing shackles and chains. They're slandering God's good law, which is for our good and for our life, and they're saying we need to burst out from it. Now, do you notice that in the world? Do you know, does that, is that a fair characterization of the world that we live in? Do people want to submit to God's good rule? No, they say, and they sing it at their funerals. I do it my way. This is a very accurate picture of our world. So verses 4 to 6, the world has picked a fight it can't hope to win. Uh, So what does Yahweh do in the face of these plotters, these mutterers, these ones planning rebellion? Well, he laughs. Have you ever thought about God laughing? It's not a polite chuckle. This is a laugh. We can't believe what's happening. You idiots. What are you doing? God's not concerned. These people represent no threat to him. None at all. They're restless in their turmoil. They're raging and rumbling and muttering. What's he doing? 
He hasn't even got out of his chair. Yahweh sits. But then his laughter turns to terrifying and furious wrath. Now again, this is an unpopular idea. People don't like to hear that God is angry, but why wouldn't he be? Wouldn't you be angry if a good gift that you'd given had been trashed and been walked all over? God's given life. He's given a beautiful world. And yet people say, no, we'll do it our way. And God is justly and rightly wrathful. He's angry at human rebellion and sin. Now, God's wrath isn't like my anger. God's wrath is not like having a bad temper. God's wrath is this settled opposition to rebellion. If God didn't deal with rebellion, he wouldn't be God. You see, the thing is, if God wasn't angry, if he didn't exercise wrath at the rebellion that we've read about in the first three verses, that means he's indifferent to it. Now, I used to be a school teacher, and let me tell you, secondary students, and primary ones too probably, but my experience was with secondary students, they had a very finely tuned sense of right and wrong. And if they thought that I was dealing with one student in a way that I hadn't dealt with another, they would let me know. Mr Messer, they'd say, what about? And they'd point to this one. I had a kid in my first school who was so naughty, it was almost like we had to write a different set of rules for him. And I thought everybody else understood that. He was just so off the charts with what he was prepared to do that I thought everybody else would know that that they operated by a different set of rules. They'd say, but yeah, let him get away with it. And I thought, oh, they expect me to... Right, I get it. You see, the thing is, when you turn a blind eye to wrongdoing, that means you're indifferent to it. And God is not indifferent to rebellion. But the other thing about God's wrath, if he wasn't wrathful, there's nothing to be saved from. And what we're doing today is irrelevant. God is angry at sinful rebellion because it it, it says, God, we think you're less than you really are. And we're prepared to wipe our feet all over the good gift of life that he's given us. And he's told us how we should live. He wants to bless us. So to turn your back on that is a really foolish proposition and it's a dangerous state to be in. And he's not indifferent to it. He will do something about it. Well, Yahweh does do something about it. In verse 6, he installs his king on Zion, his holy hill. Now, there's another code word. Zion is the mountain on which which Jerusalem was built. It was the place where the king had his palace and where God had instructed for the temple to be built. So God lived in the temple by his Holy Spirit. So when you read about Zion, we read about it in Psalm 99 before, all the way through the Bible, when you read about Zion, it's code for this is where God lives. Right in the middle of his people, this is where God lives, in the temple, but in amongst his people. So what's God done? He's put a king to reign where he lives in Zion. That's what he's done. That's his response to the rebellion. And so this king speaks in verses 7 to 9. In verse 7, he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, is this Jesus that we're speaking about? Do you know the the old joke? Have you heard the joke about the teacher in Sunday school? She uh, said to the boys and girls, boys and girls, what is small and fluffy 
and furry with long ears and a little fluffy bobby tail. And the kids all sat there looking at her. And this little boy plucked up the carriage and put up his hand slowly and said, well, I know the answer's Jesus, but boy, it sounds like a rabbit. (laughs) Now, the answer is always Jesus. So yes, this is about Jesus. But for the people who first received this as a psalm, they hadn't heard of Jesus yet. And if we want to understand the psalm, and if we actually want to understand Jesus, we've got to do the patient work of working out what it meant to the first hearers because that will help us to understand who Jesus is and what he's done. So yes, it is about Jesus, but hang on. We've got to deal with the rabbit bit first, all right? Now, 18 times in the New Testament, Psalm 2 is quoted or referred to. So Nathan read before from Revelation 11. And there's a very strong tie-in between Revelation 11 and Psalm 2. It's a very important passage in the New Testament. It's a very important passage for understanding Jesus. But what did it mean to those first people? In the NIV, if you're reading from the New International Version, you'll see that verse translated this way, You are my son, today I have become your father. Now that's a fair translation, but it's not literal. The the ESV that I'm reading from is a more literal translation. Um, I will tell to the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now begotten is a bit of an old-fashioned word, but it's an important one. Uh, Begotten means to give birth or to bring something forth. It can be used of the woman giving birth, but it can also be used of the man's role in producing a child. So it can be used interchangeably. So yes, it's okay to say, today I've become your father, because fathers have something to do with babies being born. So it has to do with birth and bringing forth. But it can be used figuratively. It can be used as a figure of speech. So in the Old Testament, sometimes we can read that a city or a nation gives birth to its inhabitants. So I could say, I'm a child of Hazelmere in Surrey in England. Right? I've been begotten by that little village in England. That's where I was born. Um, we, we read in the Old Testament that wicked can give birth to evil. We read in the Old Testament that God gives birth to Israel. And so in Deuteronomy 32, we read that, that the rock of God, the rock, bore or fathered you. Right? So this word begotten means to bring forth. It means to, to produce offspring. In Psalm 2 verse 7, the, the word is used to denote a special relationship between God and the king and that special relationship is characterized as a relationship like a father with a son is that making sense so far right that's what psalm 2 means psalm 2 is god speaking in a fatherly way about the king who relates to him as a son should relate to his father now in the old testament sonship is something that is said of israel So in Exodus 4, when Moses is told to go to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, let my people go, God gives Moses a message to take to Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Israel, the nation of Israel is my son. God established that fatherly, sonly relationship when he made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai when he gave them his law to live by. And so what this means is, father and son... Good kids do what their dad tells them. Would you agree? 
So it's an apt and a very vivid description of how Israel, God's chosen people, were to behave in relation to him. He's like the perfect father there to be obedient children. And so he can say, I'm your father, you're my son, live like it. They're meant to be chips off the old block. They're meant to be like father, like son. They're meant to live a holy life, just like their father. Now, the king was the supreme son. He's like the representative of the people. And so Israel is God's son, but the king is God's son as the people's special representative. And so the king was the go-between between God and his nation. And so we find in 2 Samuel 7, another very, very important passage of scripture, that David is promised that he will have a descendant who will reign forever. So David was the greatest king Israel ever knew, and yet God said to him, you're going to have one who's even greater. There's going to be a son that comes from your line, and his throne will be established forever. So what does son mean when we read it in Psalm 2? It's a code word that means the king with whom God has a special relationship, the king who God is going to establish, who will have an eternal reign, a human king who will reign forever. And and so Psalm 2 has to be read against the backdrop of 2 Samuel 7. Now when we read these words, Psalm 2 verse 7, the Lord said to me, today you are my son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's thought that probably Psalm 2 was first of all used as a song to be sung when a new king was crowned. So can you imagine, Israel has a new king, the old king's died, the new king's coming in, they have a ceremony, just like happened back in 1953 I think it was, when Queen Elizabeth was crowned in Westminster Abbey. And one day, and we may yet live to see it, there'll be a new king crown in England. And the ceremony will be something that will be televised right around the world. Well, they didn't have TV back those those days, but they sang songs. And so Psalm 2 is likely a song that they sang on the day that the new king was renewed in the covenant with God the Father. And the Father says, son, listen up. You need to look after my people. And Psalm 2 was sung, today I have begotten you. So that seems to be what Psalm 2 is about. It's a covenant renewal at the coronation of a new king. And so this king, what kind of king is he? Well, he's going to rule with a rod. Now the rod that he's he's going to be using is an iron rod. Iron speaks of firmness and strength. And so he's going to rule these rebel people with a rod of iron. And so we see here from this ancient Egyptian sculpture, the king with his rod, like a shepherd, except that this shepherd's rod is made from steel, iron. It's going to, you know, he'll he'll shepherd you gently, but don't let him whack you with it. And with this rod of iron, he's going to dash the nations to pieces like pottery. You see, their plans are empty anyway. There's not much holding them together. So this king is going to reign in power. Well, is he a good king? Is he a safe king? Is he trustworthy or will will he be cruel? Now, mostly throughout human history, people with power have been cruel, haven't they? Why do you think people go into politics? Is it because they're nice and pleasant, want to make life your, your life easier? They usually go into for what they can get out of it themselves, don't they? 
Now, we've got enough checks and balances in Australia that we can get them to pull their heads in because we say, well, look, if you're too rough with us, we're going to vote you out in three years. But kings ruled for life. And the only way to get rid of one was to kill him. So what sort of king is this king going to be that Yahweh's installing on his holy hill? Well, he should be able to be trusted because back in Deuteronomy 17, there's a very strong instruction. Again, you need to get this in mind. God said to Moses, tell the people when they want a king, that king needs to write his own copy of the law and he needs to read it day and night. And so Yahweh's king will be a king that knows Yahweh's good law. And Yahweh's king needs to implement that law for the benefit of Yahweh's people. So here's the great reassurance. You put Psalm 2 together with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. Psalm 2's king is a Psalm 1 man. What a reassurance, wouldn't you say? Could you trust a king who was guided by God's law? You should be able to. Psalm 2's king is a Psalm 1 man. And so in the last three verses, we find a call there. The king calls to all he reigns to find refuge in him. So there's an ultimatum here. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. God's intention for the world is good. God made a good world and he wants to restore blessing to it, but he will punish the wicked. If he doesn't punish the wicked, the world will continue to be unsafe for those who do live God's way. So he's going to have to deal with rebellion. But the king is now here saying, he's offering terms of peace to these these muttering, plotting kings of the world. He's saying, quit, give in, you're never going to win. Wise up, act straight. What's seen here is the blessed life of Psalm 1, the law keeping, under the lordship of the Davidic king, the king who's going to reign forever. And in that is safety. Do you know what refuge is? An animal refuge is a place you take dogs and cats to that have been maltreated elsewhere. A refuge is a safe place. The world's a dangerous place. The only place to find safety is in the king's son. The son who's equipped with a rod of steel to punish all rebellion. The son who lives by God's law. And he knows how to do what's just and fair for the ones who the world mistreats. And so the danger that the king puts out, the the, the choice that the, the king puts out there in the end of this psalm is, do you want to inherit a world of danger or blessing? Which road do you want to go down? The wise choice is just to give in. Submit. And so we read there the secret to submission in verse 12 kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in your way for his wrath is quickly kindled so in other words the son's wrath is something to be reckoned with as well God's wrathful the son's wrathful the kingly son now what does it mean to kiss the son we see it there this is an ancient um, relief carving it was customary in those days that if you were defeated in battle you would register your submission to the king whose armies had defeated you by kissing his feet. 
that says, I give in, I give up, I've stopped fighting. And so this is one king, a defeated king, kissing the feet of the king whose armies had defeated him. Now that's humbling. But that's the way to refuge, that's the way to safety and salvation. Do you want an eternity of refuge? Or do you want to go down the dangerous path? The only way to refuge is to kiss the feet of God's king, his son, the king of Israel. That's what Psalm 2 says. Find refuge in the son. Well, is there such a king? Is there a Psalm 1 king? No Israelite king ever lived up to that picture of kingship. David began well, but he failed spectacularly. Solomon, Josiah, Hezekiah, they all had their moments, but not one of them was able to establish this worldwide rule from Zion. Israel under their reign continued just to be a little country with very little influence. There was never that complete vanquishing of the enemies of Yahweh. So who is it that fulfills these hopes and aspirations? The New Testament writers are very, very clear. So Jesus, when he was baptised in the Jordan by John the Baptist, a voice from heaven came which quoted Psalm 2 verse 7. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The voice from heaven identified Jesus, this is God speaking about the one being baptised, he is the king of Psalm 2, this one right here. Don't, Don't mistake him. And so as son... As the kingly son, Jesus fulfills all that Israel should have been as the son of God, the son who does what its father wants it to. Jesus always did what God wanted to. He succeeded where Israel had failed, but he succeeded where Israel's kings failed over and over again. How did Jesus chiefly demonstrate his obedience to his father? By going to the cross. He said, not my will, but yours. And that, friends, is the answer to our dilemmas too. What's the key to the blessed life? Not my will, but yours, O God. And Jesus showed it. He went to the cross. And so the eternal son, because Jesus has from eternity been God the son, but God the son stepped into human history as a human son. And in his obedience to his heavenly father, he secured by his death our forgiveness for sin. Psalm 2 holds the key to understanding who Jesus is, how he relates to the world and how we can find safety in a world of rebels, a world that's rebelling against its creator. Because Psalm 2, Jesus by demonstrating his obedience, shows that he's Psalm 2's king and Psalm 1's man. So will justice ever be done in this earth? Will the dusty millers of this world ever find that justice has been done? Dusty Miller who, because of his goodness, because he had such a transparent faith in the Lord Jesus that made his captors angry enough that they crucified him, Will justice be, would justice be done to Dusty Miller if God said it doesn't matter? Would that be okay? Would you think that was a just outcome? No, it does matter to God when God's people are are maltreated. It does matter. And He will deal with it. He gives anyone the opportunity to turn. 
Even the cruelest persecutor, like the Apostle Paul, can have their sins forgiven, their heart changed. But they need to kiss the feet of the Son. They need to give in and quit fighting. They need to submit before it's too late, and so do we. But Nathan read before from Revelation 11, yes, justice will be done. There's this wonderful picture of it uh, in Revelation, the, the, the blasting of the seventh trumpet. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. That's a direct quote from Psalm 2. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. On judgment day, the iron rod of God's justice wielded by Psalm 2's king, the Lord Jesus, will extinguish from the earth all traces of plotting and rebellion and will make a new creation which is safe for the dusty millers of the world to inhabit. Justice will be done. Wrongs will be righted and those who've held on to Jesus will be rewarded. And there it is in Revelation 11. So Psalm 2, Psalm 1. Blessed are all who delight in Yahweh's word. Blessed are all who take refuge in his son, the king who will reign over the whole earth. So what's it for you, friends? Rebellion, judgment, punishment or death? Or will you humble yourself while you have time kiss the feet of the sun, quit fighting and find your refuge in the one who died for your sins. Let's pray. Loving Father, these are, these are challenging, these are sobering and, and, and strong words and I ask that you would help us not to underestimate their force. Please take them and write them on our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Please grant that we would cheerfully delight in your word uh, find in it direction and, and, uh, and guidance. Find in it peace and rest for our souls. But we ask that you would help us to live lives of daily submission to Jesus, your true King, the one that you've installed in Zion, the one who will reign through all eternity. We pray that you would help us to submit to him each and every day. Father, please uh, help us in these things, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.